Greetings, Wargamers. We're your hosts, Trevor, Jay, Josh, and this is Shannon Attack. Attack. is sponsored by Discount Games Incorporated. Discount Games Incorporated specializes in customer service, low prices, and prompt shipping. You can find our web store at www.discountgamesinc.com. Chain Attack. I'm your host, Trevor, and uh, I have absolutely nothing nerdy to say at this moment. My co-host caught me off guard. (laughs) (laughs) I I was I looked down at my phone and it said um, Skype call and I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, it is that time. (laughs) (laughs) Which, as we Uh, were saying before we started recording, is everyone's lives right now. I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm Jay and uh, I. I bought Brian and I bought Total War Warhammer 2 last night, and I haven't tried it yet. I'm a little bit worried that the real-time strategy aspect will will turn me off, but hopefully it's going to be a good time. Everyone on Twitter loves it. I'm really glad that I'm not the only apostate from turn-based games this week. (laughs) Thanks for joining me, Jay, in this dark timeline. Yeah. Also, Trevor, don't you have an excuse for whatever you do today? Because is it actually your birthday today? It is my birthday today, yes. <laughs> wow, so happy birthday. As the um, reigning youngest member on this podcast, I, I, uh, I'm I, hoping to maintain my title. Well, see, so the nerdiest thing you could have said is that you're for your birthday, you're on a call about, about <laughs> that I'm games a middle-aged, and geek stuff, etc. I'm a middle-aged white guy recording a podcast on my birthday. That's pretty geeky, yeah. I, I, <laughs> so... I, I'm very excited because we have a, a special guest joining us this week, uh, Jason Matthews. So, Jason, uh, could you say hello us and, and introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, guys. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Jason Matthews. Um, I uh, am a co-designer of Twilight Struggle, 1960, more recently Imperial Struggle, and a bunch of other things in between. And... Uh, I am a gigantic nerd, but I will, and I don't even mind real-time strategy games, but I haven't played one in a long time, so I don't know that I'll be downloading Total War Warhammer tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but what is your favorite turn-based video game? My favorite turn-based video game, I I still, I'm playing Civ 6. Actually, COVID got me back to playing Civ. Oh, I got uh, it. I'm a little misty-eyed just instantly. Well done. <laughs> and weirdly enough, it was my daughter who dragged me back into it because she wanted to play together. So I was like, okay, why not? Oh, that's awesome. So are you are you playing co-op or competitive versus your daughter? We play competitive. Me, my son, and my daughter. Holy uh, cow. Yeah. Well, we don't like each other, so it helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's like hashtag life goals for me, but I can only think of one of my children who might potentially become a Civ opponent someday. <laughs> I don't think any of my kids are going to be Civ. Well, no, my youngest son, he, when he gets there, he will be he will be my Civ opponent. There you go. So I'm a little disappointed that you didn't mention my favorite game that you designed, which is Founding Fathers. Well, let's, uh, I am very glad to hear you say that because that was... I think it was the hardest game I ever designed. Um, and I made my kids play it like, I don't know, three or four months ago. And I was happy with how it, it, it still works pretty well. You know, it's not a young design anymore, but it still hangs together pretty well. I will say the one thing that it sort of broke it for me um, was the online play because um, you could track the delegates really easily with online uh, play. Yeah, and it sort of um, it sort of broke it when you knew George Washington or um, Benjamin Franklin was still out there, um, and I really enjoy it when you know you're forced to track those things in your head and not necessarily um, using a so. But I love that game. 
Well, that's uh, very kind of you to say, and I, I, I'm sure I would agree with you 100%. Like if you knew precisely which state cards were out and which and precisely which events might still pop up, it would take away some of the charm. So, Jason, um, you, you, you say that you're, you're a, a big geek, and uh, given the uh, games that you've produced, I'm, I'm inclined to believe you. <laughs> uh, but what are, what are some of your uh, favorite geeky endeavors? Well, of course, you know, I was seven when Star Wars came out, so I, I'm a big Star Wars nerd. I read comic books when um, I was young all the way through, and now we're in this kind of movie, comic book movie uh, renaissance or golden era, whatever it is. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm into all that. Uh, needless to say, I was like high school quarterback with these kind of hobbies, so... <laughs> um, that, is, that is the worst mixed metaphor i've heard today <laughs> i uh obviously i spend and in uh, politics is kind of my occupation but it it was and is also kind of a hobby um and needless to say i spend too much time reading history and all of that so um yeah this nerdiness pretty much swallows my whole day. So is I, I assume that um, game design is a a side gig that you do, and and something related to politics is is your normal occupation. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I, I, maybe if I lived in Kentucky or something, I could just do gaming full time. But uh-huh. living in the DC suburbs, it's not really an option. So uh, I am a lobbyist. Uh, I have been. I'm technically a lawyer and. Um, I spent a very long time working on Capitol Hill before then. So, Jason, ah. give it to us straight. Should we should we have more harsh feelings towards lobbyists or towards insurance industry uh, agents? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both beloved as well as should be. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know what? My and I'm not. I don't even have anything negative to say about the insurance people. The my. The Geico people I deal with are always so nice to me. So <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to go with lobbyists. Well, I'm convinced that the insurance industry has done a better job of, of like long-term PR, you know, than than your industry, than lobbyists, because you just put the nice people out in front of us and then just do the, you know, the uh, merciless cold equation uh, decisions behind the scenes, so... Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And when I scratch my fender, it doesn't really – they're not that worried about it. But when uh, Katrina did $100 billion worth of damage, they have a different kind of focus. So, yes. <laughs> so looking through your Board Game Geek profile, um, Twilight Struggle is, is the first game that you designed. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that – that just kind of blows my mind. I'm just going to throw this out here. <laughs> it's, it's it's like uh, Beethoven is like, you know what? I'm going to uh, publish the Ninth Symphony as my debut. <laughs> well, that's that's super kind. Uh, I think there were, I, I think they, Ananda and I had a couple of things going for us. The first is that we both play a ton of games. So um, I, you know, I had a collection of like a thousand different games, not just war games, but Euro games and everything else. And so that broad exposure, I think, helps you steal good ideas from other people and have a better understanding of what works and what doesn't work. Um, So we had that going for us. Then the second piece was how we started with Twilight Struggle, which is you know, we uh, Ananda had gotten super engaged with GMT on um, on Consim World uh, mostly, and um, he started playtesting for them, and I was his playtest opponent. And uh, mostly, we were just doing um, CDGs, and um, so we were hands on with people's early designs. We we had done Volko's Wilderness War and then some other designs um, subsequent to that. And 
So again, it was this exposure to, well, what's working, what's not working, what do we like about these systems, what don't we like about these games? And so that helped us focus our design on the things that we were trying to get across. Um, and then the last thing that, it, you know, that the last thing that was just happenstance is 9 uh, 11 happened, and suddenly the world got a lot scarier and more chaotic. And there was, I think, a little bit of nostalgia for the Cold War in a way that wouldn't have been true if the game had come out, you know, 10 years earlier. Or Interesting. Yeah, okay. So in your, um, your gaming career, what would you say are some of the board games that have influenced your design philosophy the most? Mm. Well, of course, I'd have to start off with Mark Herman's We the People because Mark is the one who had the incredible insight that um, putting politics on cards was a great way to introduce political decision-making into war games. As you guys probably know before that, what we had was a lot of static charts or hardwired politics into a game. When you take this space, this thing happens. Or uh, roll randomly a D6 and then this random event occurs. Well, that was never very satisfying. It always added layers of unpleasant complication to games. And it didn't really mimic politics very well. But when you reduce politics to a card that comes up in a context and you and you you add a rule that only applies in this specific context it it feels much more like the forces of politics than what we had been doing before and of course um i love that because that intersection between conflict and political decision making is the thing that i'm most interested in um, I, on the Euro side, um, the guy who I admire most is kind of an odd one. Uh, his, his name is Michael Schacht and he designed Web of Power and a bunch of other, not like humongously successful Euros, but, but good Euros. And what I love about his designs is usually his designs are about a binary decision. Like you can do this or this, but what is great about it is you can track the follow-on effects of doing A or B, and there are like 10,000 permutations of them, which make his games very simple to play. You can play with a six-year-old, but the six-year-old is never going to beat you because he's not going to follow all the permutations through. Um, and I, I love a design that infuses what seems to be an easy decision with a lot of strategy. One of his best that I think our listeners would enjoy is Zularetto, which I haven't played for honestly years. But uh, yeah, I think that is a fantastic design, um, and it also has that great Istari story. I don't know if you guys know um, Istari. It's another. I think they're a French publisher, but another um, another publisher of kind of Euro games, and they had a very hot um, Euro game that year called Isfahan, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it lost the Spiel de Yara to Zularetto because um, in their minds, Zularetto had an adorable panda on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Isfahan had the camel. What were they thinking? And here, But here's, here's the genius of those guys. Every, if you look closely, every box that came out after that loss had a dead panda on it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so for a lot of the people uh, listening to this podcast, I, I, I own a game store. Their dream is to either own a game store or to be a board game designer. And so, uh, you know, people are listening to this and, and, you know, living this dream of, of, you know, someday I can be a board game designer. And most of them, when they're they're having this dream, they they think that they're not they the, it doesn't enter their mind that they want to be a co-designer of a board game. Really, it's you want to be that one person on whose name is on the box. And so, um, and make I guess, your millions having yeah, and make your make your untold wealth. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess I'm curious what you, you already mentioned a little bit playtesting uh, together, but, but I guess what was kind of the what brought you to co-design this board game together, and uh, what's I guess do you see as kind of the pros and cons of of that type of experience versus being a, a sole board game designer? Um, so I am, I'm doing two board games now, um, by myself. And the reason that I prefer to have a co-designer in addition to having someone else's ideas and, and, you know, that, that has a a huge virtue, um, and their critique when something isn't working or whatever. Um, but my, my, the main thing that I really love about having a co-designer is the accountability that I have to another person. So there are so many days when I hit a problem in a game and I don't really want to deal with it. So I can always go do something else like play Civ six. But if I have, if I have split up the work on a design and I have to provide blank, whatever it is, the next set of cards, uh, revision to the rules, uh, suggestions for the counters, whatever it is. When I feel accountable to another person, I'm much more likely to just sit down and slog through it than I am on my own. Uh, There was a time period where Josh and I were in the one category that Jay talked about, somebody who wants to be a game designer. And we worked together on a game. And one of the things that I always found was that um, if you have a co-designer, they're much more willing to challenge your um, sacred cows than you are, obviously. Um, but that's a big deal, I think, because a lot of times people get tied up in a particular mechanic or a particular um, you know, aspect of the game and... If you don't have somebody to kind of counteract that, you'll end up just pushing through. Even when, maybe even when playtesters are telling you, "Hey, this doesn't work" or "This doesn't feel right." Yeah, that that's absolutely a huge problem um, for for all sorts of game designers. I mean, even experienced ones. I, I remember being at uh, WBC and and watching Richard. Uh, Berg scream at a group of playtesters that they didn't understand what he was trying to do. Uh, <laughs> and I say, I, again, you know, uh, I, I think very highly of Richard Berg and Richard Berg's designs, but I, but I also can empathize with the frustration that goes on when you, when people don't understand what it is you're, what it is you're trying to convey in a game. Yeah. So uh, one one of the big reasons why um, I I contacted you and, and wanted to try to have you on the podcast is um, you know, I I, re- I receive as as a game store owner I receive many 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 <laughs> solicitations <laughs> for various board games and uh, one of the ones that I saw was uh, Imperial Struggle was mm. something that was on the um, horizon and and as a game store owner the my, my default position on on most board games is that i'm not going to take them into my uh, be by be purchasing them because um, there's just so many that it's it's not really there has to be a special reason uh to consider a game at this point um and so it is it is a game that's now released it's a game i have in stock um and I, we wanted to um, get a chance to talk about that game with you. So, uh, first off, I guess what what is maybe the the elevator pitch for Imperial Struggle? Um, well, Imperial Struggle is the spiritual successor to Twilight Struggle that takes an earlier global conflict between England and France and covers uh, what what historians call the Second Hundred Years' War that. Um, that uh, begins with the War of Spanish Succession and ends with the French Revolution. Well, I'm sold. You had me a successor. <laughs> <laughs> that said, it is a completely different game. Um, and so I, I always go out of my way to warn folks, if you love Twilight Struggle, this is not necessarily going to be the same experience if you're if you thought, if you thought we were just doing Twilight Struggle with tricorns, you might be disappointed. Uh, well, 
also one of the one of the core mechanics of Twilight Struggle is um, trying to avoid global th- thermonuclear war, and clearly that cannot be the same central theme <laughs> here. Um, so, what would you say are the central themes? Try as hard as the French would. Uh, no, they did did not get a hold of a world destroying weapon. Um, <laughs> the, um, what this game is about, from my vantage point, and we, Ananda and I talked about this game probably a couple of years after we'd finished Twilight Struggle, and then um, due to some complications that he had with his uh, professional occupation, we just couldn't work on it for a very long time. So we picked it up, I don't know, let's say two or three years ago again. And um, But when we were conceiving of it, one of the things that we wanted to... Um, focus on was the relationship between war and peace because we have a lot of games where um, a space is important because the designer tells you it's important it has a big star on it um, you know it's a it's the end game winning condition and that's that's how war games typically are and then on the euro side uh, you build these you have all of these games where you build an economic engine um you gain victory points and then you don't do anything with them either but in point of fact both of those things always were interrelated and it's that interrelationship that we're focused on in imperial struggle why do you care so much about upper canada well this game answers that question um it's because you know you're trying to control certain markets and those markets are important for your economy and you're building your economy so you can win wars and it goes on and on and on and on in that kind of cycle uh, and in the meantime you're trying to destroy your uh, your you know two centuries old uh, blood opponent that lives across a small channel so one of the things that uh, we, we we've already recorded a, a bonus podcast where we kind of uh, talks amongst ourselves about Twilight Struggle, and um, one of the one of the things that I think we appreciated about it was that um, it's the the rules for it are fairly straightforward, um, and it, it has a, a very high replayability. And, and we compared it in a lot of ways to um, chess in that way. Um, would Would you say that uh, Imperial Struggle is kind of in that same plane or is, is the complexity increasing some as with, with this new game? Yeah, the, definitely the complexity is increased. Um, in fact, I would say that it's the only game since twilight struggle where it is veered towards more complexity rather than less. I mean, the only game that I've been involved with the design and part of that was the audience. Like we designed, when we started this, we, had the GMT audience in mind from the very beginning. I mean, no one, no one is designing a light game about the war of Austrian succession for the general market in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) So of course, you know, we, we had kind of these historical conflict simulation gamers in mind. Um, So the, and their tolerance for complexity is a little higher. I would say that the actual gameplay of Imperial Struggle is not any harder than the gameplay of Twilight Struggle. What is harder is that there are more exceptions. Um, so the, the rules are a little more Baroque. Not that they're that much longer than Twilight Struggle, but you know there are things that you have to keep track of. Um, in terms of its replayability, I think you would find that almost everyone reacts the same way, which is that it is a it's like a sandbox game it's much much more open ended and less scripted than twilight struggle so the strategies that you can eventually pursue seem if anything broader than imperial or than twilight struggle sorry for the pause that's kind of blowing my mind a little bit right now <laughs> <laughs> um i guess what would with a, a lot of when I'm used to a sandbox game in like a role-playing game or a computer, um, like uh, right now, Crusader Kings 3 is is a kind of a popular sandbox game where there isn't really uh, much of a win condition built into the game. Um, what? How how does someone win Imperial Struggle? 
So, I mean, you win Imperial Struggle by uh, moving a victory point track that is also kind of a tug of war. But in Twilight Struggle, you know, because of the way that we've oriented the deck um, and that certain events and scoring cards are going to come out in a certain period of time, uh, it's a little more scripted. You know, you, you have to focus on Europe and Asia in the first couple of turns. You have to get your foot in the door in Africa and uh, South America and the mid-war, et cetera, et cetera. You know things are going to be rough for you as the Russians in the end game. Um, Imperial struggle doesn't do that. If you want, if you as the British want to focus your attention in the Caribbean and ignore India, or you want to uh, focus on building alliances in Europe and neglect your navy, those are realistic options for you. And um, I think they were also historical choices, but we do, you know, there are certain ways in which we incentivize folks to follow the historical path, but in no way are you straightjacketed to it. Would you say that the reasons why you're encouraged to go those paths are similar to the reasons why the original countries chose those paths exactly um but i think it's also important to remember that you know britannia ruling the waves is something that happened in 1805 after trafalgar up until then the french were toe-to-toe with the british navy often and you know they won those important naval engagements in the american revolution i had a french (laughs) i i had uh, a, a french friend of mine complaining because, you know, uh, I, I posted something nice about uh, Waterloo or, or, or some British battle and he's a uh, British one battle. And he, you know, he's like, you know, we won three times more land battles than the British, but the only one anyone ever talks about is Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you said that Imperial struggle is, is more than just uh, you know imperial struggle with tricorn hats. Yeah. Uh, what would you if if someone is is familiar with Twilight Struggle and and loves it? Uh, what would you say are kind of the the main differences that they should expect? Um, so there are two fundamental differences. One is um, we experimented with the kind of a solution to one of the critiques of Twilight Struggle, which is. I've got a crappy hand of all ones, and I'm going to lose the game because of it, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm, I'm, all, I'm not that sympathetic to this line of complaint, but anyway. It's <laughs> um, so in this game, you there are cards. It is card-driven in a sense, but it's really much more token-driven because the tokens, there are nine of them that are placed out every round, and players go back and forth between choosing Uh, eight of those nine and uh, the tokens have the operations points for each of the cards and you have to kind of like pair the events that are in your hand with the tokens that you choose and um, so you kind of create functionally a twilight struggle card by having an event that matches in the right way with the token you choose um and so that's very different. It it takes that element of luck from Twilight Struggle out of Imperial Struggle. The second thing is, of course, you know, while there are proxy wars uh, in the Cold War, um, there are very, very concrete hot wars in this game. And uh, so the military component of this game is much, much more important and less abstract, even though... I mean, I think when you play it, you'll see that the combat system and how we resolve wars is is a lot speedier and a lot more abstract than a classical war game. Um, We do cover um, three different wars completely uh, in this game, and we do it pretty fast, and it's an important element of strategy. So if I understood what I heard right there, uh, if, if I'm playing Imperial Struggle, I only have myself to blame if I lose because I haven't paired <laughs> cards and tokens correctly. Whereas with with uh, Twilight Struggle, of course, I can continue to blame that that design or whatever. That's <laughs> there is some truth in that. But there are also fewer die rolls, so you don't have that old classic excuse to fall back on either. 
How very modern. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me real briefly, uh, Jason, about the the economy part of it. I, I see there's this whole uh, you know fish first, spice, sugar, tobacco, cotton element going on. But what what part does that play in the game? Then? So the economy is important because it's a source of victory points, and it's also one way to win. You can't just focus on the wars and Europe, because if you ignore uh, the the uh, domination of markets altogether, then one way to win is for one of the players to to uh, score all the victory points in a round for all of the markets that are being scored that round okay um it also gives very concrete um importance to um some elements of of the military strategy forts help guard markets fleets help guard markets so one of the reasons that you might put a fleet uh, in the Caribbean is not just because you're getting ready for an eventual war. It's also because that fleet helps you guard your sugar, your access to the sugar markets there. And all of those things interrelate in ways that you don't normally see in a war game. Hmm, very cool. Okay. One of, one of my complaints about a lot of war games is that there is no reason to, other than, as you mentioned before, like there's no reason to control this area other than it's worth, you know, X number of points. You know, a lot of the area control style war games are there is no tactical reason or or a economic reason, maybe, except for very lightly put on it. You get three credits each round if you control this territory. But truthfully, it's it's there's no depth to what's behind the reason that you're fighting over a particular plot of land. And in this game, you won't need that explained at all, because we show (laughs) (laughs) we show what happens when you lose that fortress. Now suddenly all of your markets are subject to French invasion and you're being kicked out of North America and uh, now the the native tokens that were on your side are flipping to the other side and it has this cascading effect. And um, that is something that context is hard to capture in a, in a, you know, in a tactical war game. But if you stretch out the time period like we have where we're covering 100 years of uh, of a competition and a rivalry over the same plots of land that sometimes traded back and forth, you know, between the two uh, protagonists several times, you get a sense of why they were after it. So if I were to make an equivalency, if I were playing Josh, for example, and I were to take both sides of Germany and then just like pile on the influence so that he will never get them back, and I see his tears coming from his face. They will be sweeter this time. <laughs> yeah, they'll be sugar flavored. Exactly. <laughs> I I am sold. <laughs> now, Jason, do I understand you? You had mentioned uh, there are cards, and are, do the cards share some of that genealogy with the uh, Twilight Struggle cards, wherein there are events on cards, there are decisions that you're making where you know you have to choose how you're going to use the card. Yeah, there there are there are two types of cards actually. Um there are the the classical event cards. It does not have the same tension that Twilight Struggle does where I'm playing an event uh that favors my opponent for operations. That's not that's okay. not okay. element of the strategy in this game. It it doesn't really even it wouldn't make sense in the same way because even though these are global powers with global reach, they're not superpowers. They really are not involved in every decision does not have a, a negative or a positive for both Britain and France. You know, some things they just don't give a damn about. Because sure. Okay. <laughs> um, in any event. So that is not part of the strategy, but what is new and interesting, we have uh, two types of cards. One is the standard event, and the other set of cards is kind of your national strategy, which might define, okay, am I going to, am I emphasizing mercantilism? Am I emphasizing naval building? Am I emphasizing the arts? And those decks are individual to the two players, and uh, two of those cards will be operative at any time, and they kind of help guide you down a path because they will have uh, those events have keywords, 
Those keywords will help you trigger uh, the events in your hand that are, and when you match the keyword with the event, the event gets more powerful. So therefore you're trying to like maneuver both the tokens that you have with your uh, events in your hand, with your national policy at the same time to create these gigantic effects. I am like so excited to get this to the table, except for now I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the hard question that I know is really going to matter for me. What's the chance or how far out is a digital uh, adaptation of something like this? Well, I know Playdeck is interested. Uh, right now they're actually working on a big revision to Twilight Struggle. And so they just got it back from um, Asmodee Digital. Um, but they've been interested in doing this from, I think actually, they've been interested in doing it from the day it was announced. So I, I, I'm pretty sure eventually that will happen. Oh, fantastic. That's awesome. Cause honestly, and we, again, sorry, time travel, we talk about this in our bonus episode, I think uh, the digital implementation of, of, of Twilight struggle has made me play so many more games of Twilight Struggle than I think I ever would have managed, uh, you know, in a mortal lifetime otherwise. And so that's why yeah. I have to ask that question. It, it is fantastic. I, I think it's a fantastic implementation and it is so much, it's faster than playing in person. So that is a humongous benefit. As you say, you can get in a game in an hour and a half without really any trouble. Right. And, uh, the thing that the part of it that, that, has uh, you know it, it is exciting to me is that there are all these international competitions and it's kind of become a hobby within a hobby and and that's very gratifying yeah i bet, I bet that's right. and that the thing that's interesting to me is is i mean there are many digital implementations of board games right and i guess what i'm i'm just going to give kudos to playdeck here because it feels like sort of like with your original design of imperial struggle they really just hit it out of the park i mean it it's well done. It's, you know, user friendly. I mean, it has Trevor and I's favorite element of asynchronous play, you know, cross platform. I mean, they just did so many, many things right with it. And and I think of other digital implementations of board games and how quickly I can lose interest in them, you know, even if I love the actual tabletop game. So, yeah, that is super interesting. I'm, I'm sure that someone could make an interesting study of that. Why do some implementations work and some don't? Leaving aside the obvious, well, this was buggy and whatever. Right. Some games are just not as fun that way. And for whatever reason, um, the implementation of Twilight Struggle, to me, is almost as fun as playing it in person. Well, I don't want to put anybody in front of the spotlight for a moment. But it's interesting to me that um, the a game which I would consider being a great choice for a digital implementation has a lot of similarities in play style works great as a two player game, but just fails as a digital version is um, terraforming Mars. And I feel like maybe it doesn't fail for everyone, but it certainly fails for me. And the reason being is that I like try as I might, I have not figured out how to invite people I know to a game. Like I can go on, <laughs> I can go online and get a game going with somebody I don't know. But I don't, I don't care about somebody I don't know, and they probably don't care about me. I want to play with people I know. Those yeah. tears have no taste. <laughs> <laughs> and the it doesn't feel. I mean, I if there is asynchronous play for the app, I haven't been able to figure out how to get it to work. I mean, like, it feels like there's a certain set of sublists of things that that need to be in place for a, a digital implementation to work especially for this style of game. Um, and if, if those things work, I'd probably, pl I probably would have played a hundred games of terraforming Mars just within the last three weeks. But the truth is, is I've played zero, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, I hear you. And, and by contrast, I think for another example of a game um, that works really well is through the ages. I, I, I probably had played it in person four or five times and thought it was fantastic. I can't tell you how many online games I've played. A hundred, two hundred, I don't know. Yeah, I'm at hundreds. Yeah. My brother and I routinely uh, tear each other apart. I'm not going to say that he has the winning record, but I can't deny <laughs> that he does. But he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. 
<laughs> but, so did did you have much or any involvement in the uh, digital implementation of of that game? Um, we didn't. Uh, yes, in the sense that they had questions, um, and you know we we were super engaged in the Kickstarter campaign, but um, in terms of its actual the day to day of it, no. Um, we were, I think we were both play testers also. Um, mm. so we, we were playing around with the alpha version or whatever. Um, and, but now I know the play deck guys a lot better. So actually I'm for this upcoming, um, for its return to the play deck servers, I'm working with them on some, some interesting projects that I think will help make the app that much better. You know, it's interesting. Um, speaking of Play Deck, their implementation of Ascension is now that we've actually talked about it. I mean, I need to be able to go back in time and fix what I said um, on the bonus episode that we've already recorded. But the <laughs> game that I've actually played the most of in a mobile environment or in a digital environment is actually Ascension. And and it's the same reasons that Twilight Struggle is so great um, as a digital implementation is that I can take asynchronous turns. I have multiple games going on at one time. Um, there's just so much about what they've done well with that um, implementation. And honestly, Ascension's not even in like my top 10 favorite games. It's probably not even close. But I've played it more than any other game in the universe um, because I at one time I had six different Ascension games going. And every time I went to the bathroom, I could sit down and take six turns and wait for my opponent <laughs> to take their turn. Yeah. I think uh, it's funny you say that because I was addicted to Ascension when GMT first told me that Playdeck was interested and wanted to do the implementation. And I was like, absolutely, because <laughs> <laughs> I love this game. They clearly know. I mean, I do think there's probably some specific skill set to implementing a game that has heavy that's heavy in card text um, to, and, of course, um, to provide for asynchronous play and the, and the other features that are attractive to all of us. Um, but I, it can't be an accident that they did so well with Ascension and then with Agricola and then this. Yeah, I've actually played quite a bit of their Agricola, and I hate Agricola, <laughs> which, is, well, which is a common theme on this podcast. Yeah. I hate, but I play, I play yeah, a lot of Trevor. Jason, uh, can you tell us, so with the, the re-implementation that Playdeck is doing of Twilight Struggle, I, I mean, are there like major additions? Like, one thing I want to ask you about is, since you've played a lot of Through the Ages online, and, and you've probably have done some of the challenges. I think they're called challenges. Yeah. Is, is there something like that coming for Twilight Struggle or would something like that even work for Twilight Struggle? Um, I think the challenges are an interesting concept, but um, that's not what um, I am doing. I wanted to um, – I. I don't know whether I, – I, I can't really announce what I'm going to do. Oh, that's <laughs> fair. <laughs> um, but it, it will be a very it, – it'll be a new kind of setup for Twilight Struggle that involves some alt history. And so the deck, the map, uh, and the starting positions will change. Interesting. Um, okay. So one thing that my, my co-hosts are – fond of saying is is that they have a hard time getting two-player games on the table even though they have like hours and hours and hours playing two-player games <laughs> <laughs> and so um i guess do you do you think that that's a common perception and and what are uh, some of the challenges if any of designing a two-player game versus a, a bigger multiplayer game so um you know i think people kind of come in one of two schools. They either have a friend that they play games with or they're in a group and then they never get to play two player games. And so, you know, there's, there's room in the universe for both markets. Uh, I, um, I, well, like I said, founding fathers was the hardest game I ever designed. It's the only multiplayer game I have designed. Mm. And, the reason that it was so hard is the idea of the concept that Chris and I had when we started that game is we wanted to try and bring something like the CDG experience 
to the multiplayer format. There are, of course, superb multiplayer CDGs like Here I Stand and whatnot. But the difficulty with those games is they're not very um, they're not very concerned with the amount of time that players spend on them, and they're not very concerned about downtime. And what we were trying to do was make a CDG, which means you've got four or five people sitting around reading cards and not make that a long, miserable experience. Um, so we used a bunch of tricks. Uh, we limited people's hand size. We provide some information to the other players by what's on card backs so that they are not just reading their own cards, but they can be looking around the table and gathering information. Um, and, you know, I, like I say, uh, like we said at the start of this, I, I think it holds together reasonably well, but that's what we were trying to do. And it was super, super hard. It was, it's much easier to just be like, well, you, you're going to pay attention to what your one other opponent is going to do, and that's okay for downtime. But if you're sitting in a five-player game and you're not doing anything for four players' turns, it's that's rough. I, I will say, in Josh and I's defense, um, we uh, have played two-player games together before, such as Rebellion. We had a Rebellion game that I kept on my dinner table for um, about a week. Um, but we just fail at planning, I guess. <laughs> but um, I, I feel seen. <laughs> this, is, this is a face, Facebook meme. I'm in this picture and I don't like it. Yes. yes. Um. So yeah, I don't know. It just seems like any time that we get together, um, you know, even if it's not together but with our groups, um, we just normally have three, four. I mean, generally our issue is not um the two versus three player situation it's the crap we've got six players how do we find a game that fits six yeah. you know or do we or how do we convince in? the players to split into two and yeah, yeah how do we play two three player games or a four player and a two player game and yeah it's it's, it's never gosh there's only two of us that want to play it's always well crap we got eight people you know how are we going to split these two groups up uh, yeah, that for a very long time that was my reality as well. Obviously, in a post-COVID world, I've been I've been doing a lot more two-player wargaming than I had in years, so um, or even two-player euros for that matter. So, I want to go on the record so that it's recorded for my co-hosts that here I stand, which Jason just mentioned, is so on my bucket list of games to play that I don't I don't know how. I got to get better at planning, apparently, to ever get around. To <laughs> Josh, Josh, just for a moment, imagine a world where you invited me to that game. Can, can you imagine? Uh, yeah, it would be like the Republic of Rome day. It would be one of the greatest days of our life. I agree. That, 100%. That's right. So, so, but, but, can you imagine any situation where I turn you down? Oh no, not at all. Okay. Like, so I, I'm fully admitting it's my failure. Okay, just so we're clear here that this is your fault. <laughs> Okay, well, we're we're starting to come up on time. Uh, maybe we can each ask a, a closing question, um, or you can, if you guys don't have one, you can skip, I guess. But um, I guess for mine, I when I when I had played Twilight um, Struggle, I had kind of just assumed that whoever had made this, the designers, they were just like these huge obsessive nerds with the Cold War, and when I now when I look at like the the range of games that you've made it it seems more so that you're a huge obsessive nerve about history or politics in general is is that <laughs> something uh, would you say that that's accurate yeah that's absolutely fair um I mean the the cold war was easy um I, I've said this all in all sorts of podcasts but when Ananda and I when we first talked about designing a game we were going to do the spanish civil war um because at the time there were not a lot of games on that subject and we thought the cdg mechanism fit very well with civil wars or you know, internal conflicts like that and i started i started reading about the spanish civil war and quickly realized i could spend the rest of my life reading about the spanish civil war and not understand the spanish civil war so <laughs> Ananda was the one who was like, hey, what about the Cold War? And I was like, oh, yes, that's awesome. And then I I literally 
like I vomited out the car or the card ideas. It took no time whatsoever. From then on, it was just a matter of paring down to the deck that we had because the being old, I lived through a, a ton of those events. And then if you were studying political science in the 80s, like I was, it was about the Cold War, basically. So. <laughs> It was basically muscle memory for you then. Huh? Right, precisely. Okay, my final question then. I want, uh, Jason, your opinion on uh, what is the greatest or closest game to lobbying <laughs> or maybe the greatest political game that, there, that there's been because all I can think of is Daimoker, right, which is like feels obscure at this point. Yeah, and that is – uh, that's what I used. Uh, that's what I used to think was the greatest political game of all time, um, and um, it is a great game. I mean, maybe it, maybe it's showing its edges and its age a little bit, but I, I suspect I would still enjoy. I would really enjoy um, playing it today. I guess um, second on that list, though, and a is Republic of Rome, or as my old gaming group used to call it, Klingon Senate, because we <laughs> we spent all of our time assassinating each other. <laughs> all right, that, that's a great that's a great transition into uh, my question because Republic of Rome is one of my favorite games of all time, and I it's super hard to get to the table because it takes a large number of people to actually make the dynamic work. And it's long and it's drawn out and there's a lot of it's just it, it, it represents takes the right type of person. Yeah, yes. it also takes the right type of person to be interested in it. And and I feel like that, that that more than any other game on my list of favorites, the Republic of Rome could be reimagined using modern game mechanics. Do you think that that is possible um, in a, a political style game like that? Um, and um, will you make it for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, first of all, I absolutely agree. 1,000%. I have given that project many, many hours of thought, and um, my I had been approached with by somebody to do it because he'd done all of this historical work on the early American Republic, and he wanted to do modernized Republic of Rome using the early American experience, basically everything up until the, the civil war would be the end point. Like, like the, like Caesar, uh, in Republic of Rome. Um, and I do think there, there absolutely is a great game to be had there using the, in not exactly using Republic of Rome, but inspired by Republic of Rome. I, I spent, um, I'm, I've never published anything. My, my game design chops are awful. Um, but I've spent a lot of time in my own personal mental, uh, dojo working through, um, trying to make that game. Yeah. It's like, it is my dream game. Mine, mine is set in the, in a sci-fi setting, but it, at its core, it is still the same game. It is, you know, the dynamics of, um, an empire being managed by, you know, five to eight people at a table and um, we're cooperating together to try to keep the empire alive. But truthfully, behind the scenes, we're all fighting each other for control. I just, I gosh, understand. I love that. I love the dynamic. I would love to see a modern implementation of it. Something that, while probably not easier to get to the table, would be um, a funner, quicker play. I agree. Plus, you know that that tension between cooperation and um, and self promotion that's a that's a real human experience, right? And and most states, most governments operate more like that than they do um, the kind of weird dictatorial perspective that most games have. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I do think that if you were you know, to to seriously capture some elements of of, polit of politics and simulation, you need to have that tension that that is so well captured in Republic of Rome. Jay, I know we're basically out of time, but uh, I'm curious, Jason, can you tell us at all about the projects that you are currently working on? Uh, you said that that you're designing two games yourself right now. 
Yeah, so um, I have a, a, a two-turn introductory game. It's, it's a separate standalone game that'll be in GMT's lunchtime series um, called, or that's on, uh, it's called Twilight Struggle Red Sea. And it is focused on a very weird thing that happened in the Cold War that we didn't really cover in, in base Twilight Struggle. But at the end of the Cold War in the Horn of Africa, um, the United States had a very close alliance with the Ethiopians and the Russians had a very close uh, alliance with the Somalis. And uh, just kind of prior to the famine, and, and the famine is sort of a result of this, um, the Ethiopians had a Marxist revolution and the Soviets switched their alliance from the Somalis to the Ethiopians. And then as a result, the United States switched its alliance from the Ethiopians to the Somalis. So it is like the perfect, most cynical thing that happened in the Cold War, where two, <laughs> two and then they and then they go to war. Um, so uh, it causes all this weird confusion. The Romanians still side with the Somalis, and the Israelis still side with the Ethiopians. So the United States and the Soviet Union have allies on the wrong side of a war that they're helping. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's a mess. But it's a super interesting scenario, and it's like a two-turn uh, Twilight Struggle game, and we hope that it will be a way that um, you can both teach Twilight Struggle to people and then get them interested in the broader game, and then also just have a very short Twilight Struggle kind of experience if you've only got 45 minutes to play a game. So that's one. And the other game that I'm working on is called The United States versus Aaron Burr. That will be coming out from a new, a relatively new company called Fourth Circle Games. Um, and that game is about the treason trial of Aaron Burr um, for trying to split off basically the Louisiana Purchase States from the United States and declare himself king. Um, so it'll be another card-driven game, but the weirdness of that game is that it will be about a trial and persuading a jury rather than adding influence to countries or states. <laughs> oh, very okay. cool. So that's that's what's in the hopper at the moment. Okay, well, as the the final, final question, um, is is there anything that we didn't ask you that we should have, or, or anything that you're you would like to uh, throw out there to our audience that you'd like to go over? Yeah, I'm sure on the advice of counsel, I should just uh, shut up and leave you guys to your weekend. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, anything else that uh, I think? Eh, no, I think that that pretty much covers the water work. But I will say this much: I am um, faithfully devoted to my local, uh, my friendly local game store here in Washington, and I appreciate the work that those stores do in promoting the hobby and keeping uh, the hobby growing. And I know that this is a difficult time for a lot of those stores. So I very much appreciate what you're doing. And I hope um, that uh, you come through on the other side of this uh, stronger than ever. Here, here. Yeah. Well, uh, Jason, thank you very much for the time. Everyone listening, check out uh, the, the games that we've discussed. I'm, especially excited now for imperial struggle and to uh to, to get a chance to play that you've got uh, so, it in stock now right jay yes it, it is currently on my shelves ready to sell yeah i'll be right down okay <laughs> <laughs> awesome how many copies do you have <laughs> uh, i have currently have four copies in stock Oh, I should say, so this is the truth. GMT is sold out of Imperial Struggle, so if you want it, grab it now, because otherwise you're waiting for the reprints and with Chinese delivery times uh, in the current circumstance, who knows? Yeah, I, I put in a somewhat large-ish pre-order with the the foreknowledge that uh, it's just the way the supply chain works, that if I wanted to have this in stock for a while, that I needed to to do a bigger pre-order of it. And it, and it was a, a game I was excited about and I wanted to have available. So, well, I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you again for your time, Jason. You were a fantastic hope, hope or guest. Sorry. And uh, it was a lot of fun talking to you with you. It was my pleasure guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.